This Week in Money is archived online at talkdigitalnetwork.com. Welcome back. I'm speaking with James Corbett, publisher of thecorbettreport.com. He's speaking to us from Japan, where he has worked and lived since 2004. Welcome back to This Week in Money, James. Well, thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. James, what are you currently working on? Well, given the state of the world these days, I guess the better question is what uh, aspect of the current COVID-19 crisis am I working on? And the answer to that is that since we are approaching the uh, what will be the 19th anniversary of September 11th, I thought it would be instructive to look at some of the parallels between the type of homeland security, war on terror, police state that uh, came about as a result of 9-11 and the biosecurity police state that is coming into view as a result of COVID-19. I think there are some interesting parallels there that deserve to be illuminated. So I'll be working on that over the next couple of weeks and hopefully have something to show for it around the time of the anniversary. Do you think worldwide lockdowns are about the virus? Well, I guess on the uh, 9-11 analogy, I would say that COVID-19 and the lockdowns and all of this are about a virus in the same way that uh, 9-11 was about real estate in Manhattan. I mean, I suppose you could frame it that way, but that would be a very uh, ridiculous way to frame it. No, fundamentally, what this is about is the flexing of a worldwide global health biosecurity police state. And we are seeing some aspects of that playing out differently in different corners of the world. But, I mean, look, for example, at what's happening in Melbourne, Australia right now, where they're on a stage four lockdown. People cannot leave their house without permission from the government. People being arrested, forcibly manhandled for daring to walk outside without a mask and other such things. Uh, This is happening right now. And I think that fundamentally is what this is about. In fact, we don't have to go very far out on a speculative limb for that. We can turn to the the World Economic Forum and other fora that have uh, discussed this as the Great Reset or the chance for a, to establish a new normal. And I think that that type of uh, phraseology has employed, been employed often enough during this crisis that we know that obviously political elements are not looking at this simply as a virus that's going to come and go, but as a fundamental restructuring of the way we look at society. Are these lockdowns being used to usher in Marxism? I I suppose I understand where that question is coming from, but fundamentally, I don't think that this is about Marxism. I don't think it's about capitalism. I don't think it's about any of those types of economic or political or sociological uh, ideologies that we're familiar with. It's about one that, unfortunately, not one in 100 people in the audience likely has ever heard of, which is technocracy, which is really what this is about. This is about the institution of an establishment that is predicated on a small oligarchical faction that has incredible powers uh, that they accrue to themselves on the basis of their presumed authority, in this case in the public health sphere, to be able to tell people what to do in order to preserve the maximum number of lives or at least prevent the maximum number of cases or the goalposts keep shifting every week, as I'm sure you've noticed. But at any rate, this is about technocracy, and technocracy brings with it all sorts of economic and political uh, ramifications that I think are at a deeper level than the sort of Marxism or capitalism or, or whatever, the, the sort of 19th century framing of this debate. This is a 21st century framing, and that's going to take us in 
bold new directions that I don't know if, I don't think one person in a hundred again has even thought about this, let alone really wrestled with some of the drastic changes that are going to take place as a result of this demonization of face-to-face, human-to-human contact that is the basis of human society. When we start putting that on the table and start negotiating how much of that we're willing to give up in order to protect us from this scary virus, I think we start really uh, looking down the barrel of the gun at the transhuman, post-human future. In fact, uh, again, we don't have to go out on a speculative limb on that. The Wall Street Journal was recently running an op-ed on uh, looking forward to the end of humanity was actually the title of the op-ed, and it's all about how this great reset new normal moment gives us a chance to contemplate the transhuman future, which is a, uh, ultimately, I think, the final concluding push of the technocratic state that's being ushered in right now, where we're going to start looking at the brain chips and the, the modifications of uh, our, 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 what it means to be human at the genetic level and otherwise. These are the kind of unbelievable, fundamental, ground-shaking types of changes that are coming that I think, again, people who are stuck in a 19th century mindset uh, probably are going to miss. Are people instinctually uh, doing the right thing then when they say, I'm not going to wear a mask? Is it more than just resisting public health orders? They feel there's something fundamentally wrong? I think that, uh, in my view, the most important part of what is happening right now is essentially we are being compliance tested and i think the masks are are the most visible and obvious sign of that at least in the western countries as you know i live here in japan where wearing a mask it's just another tuesday i mean it's it, it's not a political issue people do it all the time it means nothing but in canada in america in the in england and other places like that where the, it is obviously not a cultural norm to wear masks essentially what this is is a compliance test and I, I, I think it's a, a relatively meaningless compliance test at this point. I don't think there's any huge health benefits or drawbacks to wearing masks, but people are being normalized into accepting things that are very far outside of their norm on the basis of public health authorities telling them to do so. And it's interesting to note that, of course, just a few months ago, it was, for example, in the U.S., Anthony Fauci, and in Canada and elsewhere, that people were being told specifically not to wear masks. And then a few months later, no, you have to wear a mask. We were lying to you before because we wanted to protect the uh, the store of masks. Again, it's about being able to, at any given moment, completely, utterly, blindly follow the orders of public health authorities, which is why I think that the, the, the resistance against masks, I think, is the first line of a very long battle of attrition that's going to take place in which I think it's going to get more and more invasive, the types of things that people are being told to do, including, of course, the specter of the mandatory vaccination coming down the line. Or the mandatory chip so we can find out where you've been so that we can, quote, control this virus. Exactly right. That is, as I say, we are moving into that post-human, transhuman future, and that's going to be a big part of that indoctrination. Well, we need to know everywhere you've been. We need to know everyone you've interacted with. We need to know everything that you've purchased and everything that you've done, and that's going to be done more and more through digital tracking of various forms, and then eventually, why do you have to carry this phone around with you everywhere? Why don't we just embed that directly into you? And again, that sounds like science fiction fantasy to some people in the audience who have not been paying attention, but I guarantee you that is the direction that this push is going. And it may not happen today or tomorrow, but somewhere, some number of years down the road, that is the direction we are being pushed, unless we push back against that right now. And does that mean the 
uh, the end of cash in our society because, well, you've got that implanted chip. Why not just pay with that? That is absolutely one of the big pushes of this great reset. Again, you can take this from the World Economic Forum and others who have been pushing this idea. And in fact, of course, we now know, again, this is absolutely debunked uh, rumors that were spreading around before. Oh, you don't want to touch cash. That might have the virus on it. Well, it turns out, actually, the virus doesn't even spread through cash or so. At least that is the current medical scientific consensus. But that idea has lingered on all these months and is being pushed in a number of countries. And lo and behold, wouldn't you know, this is at the exact same time that in the U.S., for example, they're starting to flirt with the digital dollar. Well, why, don't, why doesn't everyone have an account directly tied into the Federal Reserve where they can pump emergency stimulus funds directly into your account that will, of course, be tied into a biometric ID database and all of this other uh, stuff that comes along with that. The Bank of England has just come along to say that they are working on a central bank digital currency. China is now trialing their uh, central bank digital currency. They aim to be the first country in the world to to really roll out a national digital currency. It is coming, and it has been coming for years. I think this is just the excuse that will be used to, to transition us fully into the cashless society. And of course, that brings with it the complete end of privacy, the complete end of the ability to transact with others without the government or Big Brother generally being that third party in every interaction you have. And anyone who doesn't see what a nightmare that is just is not paying attention. Could you see an alternative to cash? Okay, the government takes away cash. Would people start trading something else so they could exchange funds? Say, if it's illegal to gamble in a country, we're going to uh, put a value, say, on puka shells. Well, exactly right. In fact, this is what happens time and time again when you take cash transactions out of any given locale. For example, the most obvious example of this is the prison economy, which functions on trading cigarettes or other things that uh, that is, are difficult to get in the prison. They trade like currency within the prison because they don't have access to cash in the same way, but they do have access to contraband that's smuggled in in various ways, and that becomes a type of currency. In the same way, if you do that generally in society, if you say, well, we're, you're not going to be able to use cash, you'll have to do everything through this national digital currency tied into your biometric ID wallet that's tied into your uh, phone, eventually your, your brain chip, there will obviously be people who work around that through direct barter, through changing, trading with heavy met- uh, precious metals, and uh, cryptocurrencies and other things that are outside of the national digital currency space. Uh, maybe on the brighter side of things, as things get worse, should gold go higher? Yes, uh, ultimately, yes, it absolutely should. And the, for just the most basic, obvious reason for that, just look at the Federal Reserve balance sheet over the past few months. Of course, we all know that over the past several years in the QE and QE2 and QE3, the Federal Reserve balance sheet has ballooned from under a trillion dollars to over four and a half trillion dollars. It began tapering a little bit in 2018. And then, of course, we saw in September 2019 that crisis in the repo markets, which necessitated another plunge, big splurge of uh, funds, uh, reserves being pumped in by the Fed. Uh, but uh, obviously, in the past few months, that's just been absolutely dwarfed, and we now have several trillion dollars on the Fed uh, uh, balance sheet. So there's an incredible amount of uh, funds, reserves being created. And not only are those reserves being created, but that is also uh, creating a M2 money supply increase, which which is demonstrated. You can see, uh, although that was not necessarily the case in the 
uh, last round of crisis after the 2008 crisis, where there was a huge balloon in the, the reserves, but that was not necessarily tied directly into a, an M2 balloon. Well, that is happening this time. These funds are making their way into the banking system, and uh, a lot of them, of course, are being uh, sloshed right back into the equities markets, which unbelievably, I mean, it, it just, it defies all sense unless you know how this really works, but Oh, unbelievably, we see the stock markets in the U.S. are returning to their record-setting levels that they were hitting before the pandemic. How on earth is that possible when we have incredible, large-scale shutdowns of entire industries and large swaths of of uh, the, the public businesses being upended and, and overturned and uh, GDP is dropping? How on earth are we reaching record valuations in the stock market? It's because this money is being pumped into the economy and it's being pumped right into the stock markets, and uh, we're going to see the result of that eventually trickling down to the rest of the economy, and one example of that, of course, is gold, which already has been taking off this year, but one can well imagine that uh, as the dollar continues to get diluted, the price of gold measured in those dollars is going to balloon. We'll have more with James Corbett right after the break. Welcome back. We're speaking with James Corbett in Japan. James, is silver likely to follow or proceed gold higher? There are a lot of indications that silver will actually uh, outstrip gold. In fact, it has been on an incredible bull run, uh, up over 125% since since March of this year. And and that is without the industrial base of the industrial use of silver, because obviously there has not been much industrial demand over the last several months. So assuming industrial demand does pick up, that will push silver even higher. There are definitely some large amounts of gains to be made in silver, and uh, potentially even eclipsing those major in gold. Do you think China's government is pressuring or incentivizing governments around the world to destroy their economies through lockdowns and mask wearing? I think there is an incentive for governments to do this, but I don't think it's coming from China. I think it's coming from most obviously organizations like the World Health Organization, but uh, which obviously is on the side of China, as we've seen throughout this crisis. But who is really behind the World Health Organization is perhaps the better question. And the answer would be Bill Gates. Uh, it's incredible to look at, but when you look at the numbers, the Gate, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is the second largest donor to the WHO right behind the U.S. And if the U.S. does withdraw its funding from the WHO next year, as Trump is promising, that would make the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation the single biggest donor to the WHO. So I think that is ultimately where we can see where this incentivization for lockdowns and mask wearing is coming, and that is tied into the vaccination agenda, which obviously Bill Gates is on a very public uh, uh, crusade on right now. How is COVID-19 affecting Asian countries? Similarly to the rest of the world, it's obviously had a huge, huge effect on slowing down economic activity of all sorts and travel. And this is not just affecting countries that have been hard hit by this, like South Korea or others that were initially affected, but even countries like Vietnam that have had very few cases and very few, if any, reported deaths, uh, they still are essentially isolated from all of their trading partners because of this this risk. So obviously this has had a profound, huge effect on Asian countries, Asian economies, uh, no different here in Japan, obviously, which has shut its doors to 140 different countries uh, that... They are not allowing uh, tourists or even visa holders to enter from those countries yet. They are starting to think about opening those borders to 12 of their Asian trading partners. But uh, it's going to be a very long, slow process, even if 
everything starts to recover from here and there's no more signs of viral problems, uh, I think it will still take a very long time to restore uh, economic uh, relations here in, in Asia. Is Hong Kong still a viable financial center? I suppose it's difficult to say at this point what is or is not a viable financial center at all, even Wall Street. But uh, Hong Kong certainly has been profoundly affected by the moves of the Chinese government to try to assert more control over Hong Kong. And that, of course, I think everyone knows, has led to the U.S., for example, um, using some retaliatory legislation to destabilize their relations with Hong Kong, which is going to have an effect on Hong Kong as a, as a viable financial center. It's definitely been affected. I, I can't imagine it will be for the better unless and until China somehow becomes the world leading trading economy, in which case perhaps Hong Kong will be well situated to once again be a, an international financial hub. But uh, it's certainly been destabilized. Are you seeing real estate concerns on the horizon? There are real estate concerns all over the globe right now, obviously, and uh, I think the first order effect is going to be commercial real estate uh, and and also, of course, home uh, homeowners and, and renters who cannot afford their mortgage payments or their rent. Uh, this is a huge problem that is coming to a head. For example, in the United States, Las Vegas is going to be one of the first uh, uh, localities that are going to be hit by this. It's going to have a huge and profound effect on real estate. The uh, The only question is, how long will that effect last? And again, that relies on so many different questions as to how long this pandemic pandemonium lasts in the public imagination. The U.S. stock markets are at or near all-time high. Stock markets can be a forward-looking indicator. What do you think they see ahead? <laughs> I think they see more and more and more Fed funny money being injected into the system. But honestly, I don't think that's this is a good sign at all. I think that this is the last gasp of a system that is clearly coming apart at the seams. Uh, you can continue to uh, pump trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of made-up funny money into an economy, but that is not going to uh, to infinitely balloon a bubble. Uh, obviously, this is genuinely good news for the gigantic mega uh, corporations like the the Walmarts and the Amazons and the companies that have been allowed have been deemed to be worthy of uh, maintaining operations during this period. But uh, for the rest of the productive economy and for Main Street, obviously, this is horrific, horrible, terrible news uh, all around economically. So the stock markets are not reflecting the underlying economic reality right now. They are in a bubble fantasy land and there is only one way for a bubble to end well i suppose it could deflate or it could pop and that's really your only two options what's the difference between a recession and a depression uh technically speaking i mean it's just a matter of time how long is is it before there's no growth or uh, actual retraction in the economy but i think ultimately that's going to be an academic question that will be answerable enough assuming that things are not put back on track very quickly i think people will know what a depression looks and feels like. In fact, there are many people, many millions of people who have lost their jobs already who are beginning to understand exactly what a depression can and will look like, but not quite yet because, of course, there's still a lot of government largesse being pumped around in in terms of uh, debt-created funny money. Uh, When that party comes to an end, uh, one way or another, either through some sort of hyperinflationary event or through the the, the closing of that debt spigot, uh, people will very much feel what a depression is like. Canada has a new finance minister, one without a business background. We're hearing rumblings that Canada's headed for a deep recession or worse. Your thoughts on uh, your homeland? 
Well, there is no way that Canada can escape what's happening right now. Uh, again, even if uh, Canada was completely virus-free and everything was peachy keen, obviously just the shutting down of the U.S. border, for all intents and purposes, is a huge, huge effect on the Canadian economy, let alone all of the other trading partners and everything else that's going on. Uh, again, long-term prospects for this. There's there's no easy way out of this. One could hope that the economy starts to get back on track and starts to recover, but again, how is that even? how are we even going to get to that point, let alone the actual recovery itself? Uh, there's no doubt. There is absolutely no doubt we are heading for deep recession. Uh, there's absolutely no conceivable way that we're going to dodge that. The only question is how sharp, how deep, how long. What are your thoughts on universal basic income? I wrote an article on that for the, uh, my uh, subscriber newsletter called Universal Basic Enslavement, which people can look up on my website. Uh, I think you get the idea from the title. I think Universal Basic Income is really just a fish hook to get uh, into the mouths of the public in order to keep them on the string being dangled by the technocrats, ultimately, who are uh, seeking to run a system like that. It's going to be tied into your biometric identification that's going to be tied into your government account, that will be tied into the digital national currency, that will be tied into your social credit score. And ultimately, it will be that kind of black mirror nightmare where you will have to you will have to have a, a, a proper social credit score in order to receive your basic income, and you'll need a basic income in order to survive because there won't be any productive economy left for anyone who isn't just an automaton working for the Amazon delivery drones. Even then, they're going to be uh, more and more literal drones, robotized, so eventually people will be uh, shouldered out of the economy one way or other, and the only way to put food on the table will be to accept the government handouts, the universal basic income, which will come with strings attached including, of course, make sure you get all your shots and every other stipulation that will come with that. I uh, definitely do not think that this is the way out for humanity. I think it is ultimately the the biggest nightmare. It is giving the chains to the controllers, to the, the technocrats to put around our, ne- our own neck. Could you see people trying to flee to the wilderness of northern Canada or Alaska to try to avoid that? I think there is going to be some some level of exodus from urban centers as a result of this, as uh, obviously people have seen that, like it or not, they're not going to be heading to regular office situations uh, as much in the future. There's going to be more telecommuting. There's going to be less actual physical travel and meetings needed. One way or another, this is the new normal, the Great Reset. So why live in crowded urban spaces when there is rural spaces uh, that that are cheaper and that provide potentially more comfort and uh, happiness for your family, who wouldn't want that? So I think there will be some level of exodus from urban environments as a result of this. And uh, uh, will there be actually more freedom to be found out on the frontier? Potentially. Uh, Again, that's up to the people who are actually going out there to, I suppose, enact in their own lives. Is money still able to flee China? Uh, it is difficult, isn't it? Especially in the current situation, because uh, especially as the real estate markets collapse and as, uh, as economies start to shut down and, and, uh, uh, nations are trading less with each other, there are less pores in the system for money to seep through. Uh, which of course, of course, uh, most of it being illegally brought out of China in the first place. And as China gains more control, especially as it brings in its national digital currency through which every transaction will be monitored in real time directly by the central bank itself, it will be increasingly difficult for money to flee China. Where can people follow you and see your documentary work? Uh, the one-stop shop is CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. You can go there for all of your 
Corbett Report, re- listening, viewing, reading, it's all there for free. If you want to see my recent uh, two-hour documentary on Bill Gates and his role in what's happening right now, go to CorbettReport.com slash Gates, G-A-T-E-S. The entire documentary, transcript, audio, video, all of it up there, 100% for free. It is a resource. I hope you'll use it and spread it to others. James, thank you so much for being on This Week in Money. I appreciate it. Thank you. My guest has been James Corbett, publisher of thecarpetreport.com. He was speaking to us from Japan. And that wraps up our show for this week. We'd like to thank our guests, Ross Clark, Martin Armstrong, and James Corbett. And thank you for listening. If you have any questions for the show or our guests, you can send them to info at howstreet.com. Now stand by for company showcase updates from American Manganese President Larry Ray and Avon Resources CEO Jim Pettit. I'm Jim Goddard. We'll be back next week with more This Week in Money. Comments made on This Week in Money are an expression of opinion only and should not be construed in any manner whatsoever as recommendations to buy or sell any financial instrument at any time. Archived online at TalkDigitalNetwork.com. This Week in Money is a production of Howe Street Media Incorporated. Executive producer is Tom Allen.